Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.propgmedia.com. First question. Hey, Scott, this is Matt in Seattle. After 20 plus months of the pandemic, I feel like we're truly at an inflection point. Despite historic inflation and supply chain woes, we've got 79% of Americans over the age of 12 with at least one dose not including the youngest cohort that's most recently become available. In addition to multiple oral treatments, whose approvals are on the horizon and appear to be absolute game changers. So uh, very intrigued to revisit a stock that's been one of the themes of America's pandemic, Peloton. I know you've given them quite a bit of scrutiny, uh, but in the past week plus, it's seen a ton of movement. Market cap boomerang to pre-COVID levels as it lost $10 million in valuation upon their earnings call. Prices being slashed, ad spend skyrocketing. I know you praise the brand following and community fervor, but aren't we seeing their growth dissipate before our eyes now that COVID is almost in our rear view mirror? What's your confidence level in sustaining current users uh, as well as future growth? Do you see this as a discounted opportunity for long-term potential or perhaps slowing to a crawl of a COVID-induced ride? Thanks so much. Huge fan of your work, Matt. Uh, Matt, thanks. So I do not listen to these questions before they're asked so I can be raw and authentic. And as soon as you mentioned Peloton, I immediately pulled it up on my phone to try and look at the market cap. So right now it's about a $16 billion market cap. It's trading at 53 bucks a share. It's 52-week high is $171. So it's literally shed two-thirds of its value from its 52-week high. It was obviously a pandemic favorite. And it's near its 52-week low. It's really right around its 52-week low. So we're in an attention economy. Every incremental minute you get of an American's attention is worth tens of billions of dollars to somebody. And that's where Peloton really shines, is that among its user base, they have an incredibly influential user base, and they're capturing their attention. To me, that says, with a market cap now of 17 billion or 16 billion, you don't do a bottoms of valuation of this company. You do a top-down valuation, and that is what is the attention of the most influential people one to four hours a week worth to someone else? So I think Peloton gets acquired, and I've been predicting this for 18 months, and I've been wrong. I think the most natural acquirer is uh, Apple, uh, because at a $2.5 trillion market cap, even if they pay a 50% premium, uh, they end up with a 1% dilution, meaning that this is not a bet-the-ranch acquisition. The acquisition could fail, and it would be just a... 
I mean, they'd get a lot of heckling from the cheap seats, but it'd be a gnat hitting the windshield that is that is Apple. Another potential acquirer, I think, is Nike. I think Nike is probably coming to the realization that at a quarter of a trillion dollar market cap, they're going to start running out of people to sell shoes to. And that is shoes and athletic wear will only take you so far that they need to get into a business that's more digital, more scalable, and takes advantage of their brand. One of the things that strikes me about Nike is that if 10 years ago I had said to you, there's going to be a program that's going to kind of light the world on fire that's the ultimate sports drama about an American who goes to coach a British a British uh, football club, uh, would it be produced by Nike or Apple? Nine out of 10 people would have said Nike if you looked at their commercials, their creative resources, obviously their incredible assets around their endorsed athletes. They would have said, well, of course, Nike's going to do that, not Apple, and Apple's done it. So uh, I think Nike needs to forward integrate into, the, into either some sort of connected device or some sort of content. So I can see Nike at a $250 billion market cap that would be a much bigger bite for them. That would be like an 8 to 10% dilution. So that would be the kind of acquisition that if they got it wrong, um, that would probably push, I don't know if it would push the CEO out of the door, but it would be a big overhang. But it also would be, it could potentially, if they think they spun it right and said, we're forward integrating into the home of connected fitness with the greatest athletic brand in the world, Nike, and one of the greatest or the greatest connected fitness brand, Peloton, that would make sense. Let's talk about fit though. Um, I think the fit is actually probably stronger with Apple. And that is, one, it's less of a bet for them because they just have such incredibly deep pockets, see above only 1% dilution. Two, Peloton's biggest issue, I think, is around supply chain. It is not easy to bring all those parts together in a way such that you can get 50 points of gross margin. And the thing that's one of the things that's so impressive about Peloton is they've been able to bring together a manufactured device, a technological thing, and maintain Apple-like margins. It's really impressive if a company can have a brand, an operating system, a look and a feel, self-expressive benefit, whatever it might be, the results in that type of margin for a tech hardware product. And Peloton has accomplished that. However, the friction is their supply chain. They've had some supply chain interruptions. They've had some recalls. Who has the best supply chain in the world? It's not Nike. Nike's actually had some problems around their supply chain. It's Apple because it's run by a supply chain guy. That's where Tim Cook, that's kind of his ballywick that he's, I think he's going to go down probably, maybe with the exception of Bezos, who's kind of the supply chain king. Anyways, I don't know. Both of my guests, you're talking about Ali Frazier here. Long-winded way of saying, I think Peloton at these price levels, I mean, they're probably going to get taken to the woodshed for a while, but it feels to me that I don't even look at the earnings here um, or the PE because I look at it and think, okay, at $16 billion, there's just a lot of companies that will say, I want the attention of those users. That's worth more than $16 billion to me. So what happens here? I like this as a stock because I think uh, there's a floor just in terms of acquisition here uh, by a bigger player. I do think it gets taken out. And I think right now someone's going to look at it and go, okay, this is a really uh, good deal. Thank you for the question. Next question. Hi, Scott. This is Austin from Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a product manager with a large enterprise software vendor. So I'm going to pull you over to the enterprise for a minute. We've heard a lot about lasting changes in consumer markets brought on and really accelerated by the pandemic. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on a similar shifting landscape in the enterprise or traditional B2B space. Examples could be things like a wave of new technology investment as firms rush to deliver new digital offerings. 
And for us on the vendor side, maybe some new channels or paths to market that disrupt the traditional enterprise sales cycle. What major shifts or lasting impact are you seeing that the pandemic forced or accelerated for this segment? And if we haven't seen those really manifest yet, any predictions? Thanks for taking my question. I'm a big fan. Take care. Uh, Austin from Kansas City, thanks for the thoughtful question. I've, I've always considered myself a B2C guy. And the moment we start talking about B2B, I kind of pull a, you know, basic adages and kind of, I don't know, conventional wisdom. I don't think I have a ton of insight. According to Statista, global IT spending on enterprise software should reach about $600 billion in 2021, growing almost 14% from the previous year. Just some observations. While I'm a B2C person and feel as if I understand B2C companies better, my book, The Four, should have been called probably The Five. It should have included uh, Microsoft in addition to Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. But I didn't write about Microsoft because I see Microsoft as B2B, and I feel like I don't really understand enterprise. The advice I would have, though, is that all else being equal, I would go to work for a B2B company. I've always started B2B companies. I, well, I shouldn't say that. I started a company called Red Envelope, and B2C is more difficult. Why is it more difficult? Because there's an overinvestment in B2C and an underinvestment in B2B. Why? Because B2C is cooler. Uh, people would rather go to work for Netflix or for Apple than for the chip company or the, the technology um, um, surrounding you know, the AI or the recommendation engine. People would rather go to work for Epic or Fortnite then go to work for Unity, although that might be changing the underlying, I think Unity makes environments to program kind of these metaverses in, which takes me to my next thing. One, if you're an entrepreneur, I think B2B is the way to go. So Red Envelope was my fucking Vietnam and no disrespect to Vietnam vets. I realized that, uh, that it was actually worse to be there than it was to start an e-commerce company in the 90s. But it was a really difficult business uh, because... B2C usually gets overfunded. It's more sexy. And when you have overfunding of human and financial capital, uh, that lowers and drives down returns. Whereas B2B sounds more boring. You know, healthcare, software as a service, maintenance platforms don't sound that sexy. So they don't get as much human or financial capital. Actually, they probably get a decent amount of financial capital. And I find that there are better ways to make a living. My most successful company for me personally or my two most successful were Profit, a strategy firm, B2B, and L2, which basically did kind of membership analytics and insights, selling into companies who were B2C. So in terms of where I think you want to invest, though, specifically, or where I'm thinking of investing in B2B is we'll bring on Mike Novogratz to talk about different coins. I don't own a single coin, but I am investing in the picks and the shovels. And it seems to me when you talk about global IT, what do we know? We know that there's going to be massive, massive investment in consumer apps around technology. But it's I think the people who on a risk-adjusted basis are going to do the best here. There'll be some really well-publicized winners on the front end, the B2C, who will make a shit ton of money. But I think on a risk-adjusted basis, the place you want to invest your human or financial capital is in the infrastructure play, sort of the Cisco's, if you will, or who's selling the picks and shovels. I've danced around this a lot, and it's my way of saying I don't really understand um, the enterprise. Uh, what I can say is I think B2B is a better place to invest your human or your financial capital. You want to be investing in the picks uh, and shovels, and I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity for these infrastructure players who kind of sell into everybody 
Uh, Facebook and Google take 40% of all venture capital uh, raised. So you want to get in front of all the money that's going to be raised. You want to be the service selling into that crazy cool little startup. Thanks for the question. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Grammarly. Writing is something that we do every single day, from an informal text conversation with friends to sending those all-important email to clients. People need to understand what you are trying to say. Thankfully, Grammarly is a trusted AI writing partner that saves your company from miscommunication and all the waste of time and money that goes with it. Grammarly is more than just a grammar check. It can help generate AI prompts or even help you strike the right tone and personalize your writing based on audience and context. We here at the Prop2 team use Grammarly, and all I have to say is it makes our written work better. Plus, Grammarly integrates seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. No cutting, no pasting, no context switching. Personalized on-brand writing help is built into your docs, messages, emails, everything. So why not join Grammarly to work faster, hit your goals while keeping your data secure? Learn more at Grammarly.com. Support for this episode of PropG comes from Masterclass. It's not always easy to pick up a new skill. Sure, you could dive down an internet rabbit hole and watch a bunch of videos about how to build a new deck or improve your negotiating skills, but most of that information ends up going in one ear and out the other. Masterclass offers a better way to learn from some of the world's most accomplished minds on a more structured, organized platform. With Masterclass, you can expand what you're capable of with more than 200 classes taught by genius-level instructors from every industry. A subscription grants you access to unlimited one-on-one classes that you can enjoy at home or on the go. Masterclass offers courses taught by world-class instructors, including Ron Howard, Hillary Clinton, and Lewis Hamilton, who has a surprising amount of helpful insight to share even for those of us who aren't professional Formula One race car drivers. One skill I'd like to learn is simply how to maintain that type of focus for however long the race is right now. Our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash profg. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash profg. Masterclass.com slash profg. Welcome back. Question number three. Hey, Prof G. This is Steven from Rochester, New York. And I have a question about investment diversification. I'm in my late 20s and I work in tech, therefore I have a good salary, but I only invest in index funds that cover U.S. stocks. And so my question to you is, do you consider index funds a good enough means of diversification? Uh, Stephen from Rochester. So um, I love diversification. I love index funds. And that is one of the things that's the key in the algebra of wealth. You want to focus so you can find a talent that people will pay you for. You want to be live like a stoic, which is my way of saying save more than you invest. Your wealth is not a function of how much um, you make. It's a function of how much you save. Uh, uh, you want to let time take over. I believe you want to buy stocks and great companies or buy index funds. You want to pay low fees and you want to get the fuck out of the way and let the most powerful force in the universe take over, and that is time. And if you day trade, 80 to 95% of you will lose money. No one has ever lost money if they pick five stocks in the S&P and they hold on to them for at least 10 years. Everyone has made money. And people say, if anyone says, oh, you have to be prepared to lose it all, that's not investing, that's gambling. You should not be prepared to lose it all. And I think index funds are a great way of having someone rebalance for you, low fees. I think it's a great way to go. I think your second question is, um, should you have greater diversification beyond U.S. stocks? 
I wonder, and I'll just tell you what I'm doing. I'm starting to slowly but surely rotate out of the U.S. tech trade. It's been on fire for 13 years. It's it's there's a ton of evidence, a ton of support for while it will why it will continue to rock on. Why you know software is eating the world. We are still the innovators. The number of unicorns is still dominated by U.S. companies. It's come up in China, who's really fallen is actually Europe. But you can make an incredible argument for why U.S. technology companies will continue to march on. And I think, I think that is reflected in their current valuations where you look at these these valuations as a multiple of revenues or earnings, whatever you want to call it, and they're just at, it's just crazy town. I'm at a stage in my life where I want to take less risk. I'm not looking to get rich, I'm looking to not get poor. So I'm probably at a different stage than you, and I want diversification. And one of the ways I'm going to start diversifying is going into um, ETFs and index funds outside of the U.S. and outside of tech. When I look at my life, when I look at my economic history, it frighteningly mimics the NASDAQ. And that is in 1999, I was looking at jets, no joke. And then uh, the marketplace reminded me I wasn't the genius I thought I was in 2000 and didn't go broke, but had a lot less money than I thought. Climbed my way back, 2007, started thinking I'm smarter than I actually am. And the markets reminded me again in 2008 that I'm not that smart. And then finally, I've kind of gotten back to that financial security again, as the NASDAQ has absolutely ripped up. And I'm thinking, okay, I need to be smarter this time. And so I love that you're in index funds. I love that you're paying low fees and you're diversified. I guess the question is, at some point, do you diversify geographically? And I wonder when the U.S. tech trade starts to lose some steam. I think tech could continue to eat the planet. And you could see tech stocks or these index funds go down because market dynamics trump individual performance. I still believe ultimately over time, things do return to fundamentals. And I do believe the markets are cyclical. And I think these emerging markets will have their day in the sun again. And I like to sell stuff when the when the narrative is just overwhelmingly bullish, because I think that's reflected in the prices. Long-winded way of saying, yeah, U.S. tech, I bet you've done really well. Um, but my brother, once I think you get to a certain level of economic security, or just maybe even before then, it's not a bad idea to place a few bets around different different industries, different sectors, and maybe even different geographies. But again, diversification through index, low fees, right on my brother. I think that's the way you build wealth. I would say to young people, the good news is I know how to get you rich. The bad news is the answer is slowly. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.profgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. As a reminder, we answer your questions regarding business trends, big tech, entrepreneurship, career pivots, and whatever else is on your mind on the pod every Monday. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.profgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.profgmedia.com to submit a question. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prof G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday.